Absolutely. If, if there's one thing I want listeners to leave this conversation firmly convinced of, it's that these two aspects of a person fit together better than the neurotypical mainstream could ever imagine. Like, this is a match made in you know, whatever place peanut butter and jam first met each other. Welcome to Making Polyamory Work. Hi, I'm Libby Sindak, and I want to thank you for being with me today. I'm a queer polyamorous mom and an integrative relationship guide, and I'm committed to helping people who live in love outside the status quo have extraordinary relationships because relationships are at the core of our well-being as humans. I think love is why we're here and how we heal. Today, I have a special guest. I am welcoming on Making Polyamory Work, Alyssa Gonzalez, who is a biology PhD public speaker and the author of Non-Monogamy and Neurodiversity, which is her first published book. Alyssa also writes fiction, and she uses science fiction and fantasy elements to explore social isolation, autism, gender, trauma, and the relationships between all of these things. Her nonfiction writing ranges from molecular biology to urbanism. And she lives in Ottawa, Canada, with a menagerie of pets, and can confirm that when we had our call, I got to see many creatures in her space. This episode is part one of two of Alyssa's and my conversation, Uh, because as it turns out, the conversation about non-monogamy and neurodiversity is a rich one, and we definitely don't even come close to covering everything that I would want to cover. But I got so many questions from listeners to talk about the intersection of non-monogamy and neurodiversity. And I'll just say that there are two things that are true, which is that, as Alyssa points out in this episode, non-monogamy and neurodiversity kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. And also being neurodivergent makes all relationships a little bit challenging and so having more relationships and more complexity has its own unique challenges for non-monogamous folks. I am just so thrilled to be introducing you to Alyssa if you haven't encountered her before and so let's just dive in shall we? Part one of two on non-monogamy and neurodiversity. So today on Making Polyamory Work, I have Alyssa Gonzalez uh, joining me here today, and together we're going to answer a listener question. But before we do that, I just want to, Alyssa, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. I mean, I've already introduced you in the intro, but I always like to let people speak a little bit about themselves. What would you like folks listening to know about you? Hi, well, my name is Alyssa Gonzalez, and I'm a Happy cat owner, in addition to having a biology PhD, a career as a writer, a large collection of Beast Wars Transformers, and <laughs> let's see. Oh, and I wrote a book. I, in case all of that didn't imply enough, I am also autistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, y'all can't see it, but I can see that Alyssa has a feline friend that has been making some appearances in our call, <laughs> which yeah. is great. Yeah, this girl knows when I'm on camera because I don't usually talk to myself while sitting at my desk otherwise. And she mm-hmm. likes being on camera, don't she? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been really nice getting to know you 
the last time we talked was really great. And I was like, mm-hmm. we should actually absolutely have you on the show. Mm-hmm. So the main reason why I invited you here mm-hmm. was because I did get uh, more than one actually question from a listen from a few listeners, uh, just like wanting me to talk about being neurodiverse and being non-monogamous or polyamorous and like, how do those two things go together? And I think that's come up because I've disclosed that I am myself not neurotypical mm-hmm. and how that it, it has been an evolving process for me. I'm sure it has. I think I, I think I've heard that it, that it was has for you too. sort of been an, mm-hmm. an unfolding uh, I think maybe like six or seven years ago, one of my friends suggested that I might have ADHD and I was like, but I don't, I'm not hyperactive. So, and then I started looking into, and I have great attention span. Then I started looking into what it really meant to have ADHD and it's a very poorly named, um, diagnosis. Uh, (laughs) so I looked into it and then I started to check in all the boxes. And so I talked to a therapist and she was like, yep, yep. That, that's, that is, that sounds all accurate. Mm-hmm. So I have that going on. And then a few years ago, one of my children started having some difficulty at school. And, you know, we were like, oh my gosh, are we bad parents? Like what's going on? And then, you know, ultimately we started to understand that, you know, his brain worked differently. And we started looking mm-hmm. into autism spectrum disorders and really started understanding, oh no, his brain just works differently. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and this is how it works. And then we started looking into the criteria for that. And then basically me and all, all of my partners kind of were going, well, that kind of sounds like us. <laughs> so yeah, um, we, we find each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sortative mating. We, we do a sortative mating and yeah. So we are in a sortative friending as well. And so, yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we, I think everyone in this house is some flavor of neurodiverse. And so here we are. And so I think since I've disclosed in various formats that uh, I am not uh, typical, uh, other folks have been like, oh, would you talk about that? And I was like, I would love to, but I would love to bring someone else to talk about it too. So here's Alyssa. It's an honor and a privilege. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I'd love for you to share a little bit about, you know, where you're coming from on 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 this. So I've always been pretty dang weird. <laughs> same. Hard uh, same. Uh, and it wasn't until well into adulthood as my friend circle started to take a certain shape and people were like, you, you know, you, you should, you should think about this because you keep saying you're not one of us, but we think you're one of us. And, and then I looked into it more and I'm like, oh, that explains so much. I can stop rereading this, the pages on Wikipedia about various personality disorders now because I finally have a name for the thing. Okay. Okay. And I'm curious, and and you can pass on this question, mm-hmm. and we can edit it out if you don't want to answer. But would you? Are you self-diagnosed mm-hmm. autistic, or are you diagnosed by a psychologist? It doesn't actually matter to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll go ahead and disclose I'm self-diagnosed, mm-hmm. but um, and I still think I'm pretty autistic. But I guess I'm curious how 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 you really came to truly fully accept that about yourself. So I am self-diagnosed. I did extensive reading. To- on the experiences of other autistic people online, self-diagnosed and otherwise, and found a great deal of similarity there. I found their advice for how to deal with a neurotypical world instructive. And as 
someone coming to that realization as an adult, there was, there is very limited value to being formally diagnosed. There just isn't that much out there I would have access to with a formal diagnosis that I couldn't get by just reading the same stuff I read to figure myself out. And on top of that, as an immigrant navigating Canada's immigration process, being formally diagnosed would have been a sizable demerit that would have greatly complicated my arrival in this country. Wow. Uh, did not pursue that. Yeah. Missed out on some potential uh, accommodations in academia while I was still pursuing my studies as a result. But but I got to stay in the country. So I'm, I'm going to take that deal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that you, that's exactly how I feel about self-diagnosis, mm-hmm. which is that, I mean, it really depends on what mm-hmm. you're using it for, whether whether mm-hmm. that matters or not. And I mean, I would say yeah. for me, same deal, mm-hmm. like uh, for, for me to use strategies that work for autistic people, for me to mm-hmm. think about my brain in a particular way, for me to support myself and mm-hmm. ask for the support that I need, I don't actually like need a formal diagnosis because like, what is that going to mm-hmm. give me? Like you said, now, if I was going to go back to school and I wanted some Americans with mm-hmm. Disability Act mm-hmm. accommodations, sure. And, you know, and and my kid, he does need accommodations. And and at the same time, I, I feel complicated even about that, because sometimes when you slap a label on somebody, then they just start to see everything you do and everything you are in a particular way. So it's it's a complicated mm-hmm. it's a complicated thing for for him but i think for the most part like it's something we all kind of wear with pride around here mm-hmm. so definitely <laughs> yeah well so you've written a book mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just to reiterate again it is called uh non-monogamy and neurodiversity uh more than two essentials guide yeah mm-hmm. so in that book you're talking about how how mm-hmm. neurodiversity and non-monogamy can go together Mm -hmm. and you know so and that's that's what my listeners were asking about so let's Mm -hmm. can we get into that can we start talking about how those two things go together when they do when they don't absolutely if if there's one thing i want listeners to leave this conversation firmly convinced of it's that these two aspects of a person fit together better than the neurotypical mainstream could ever imagine I guess this is a match made in you know, whatever place peanut butter and jam first met each other. Uh, <laughs> it's like we as neurodivergent people gravitate toward all sorts of non-mainstream things. Look at every quote unquote weird hobby community. You'll find us by the truckload. Like it's it's just how it works. We, mm-hmm. The mainstream that proves day in and day out that it is not for us and doesn't particularly want us. And from there, we make our exits to all sorts of non-normative communities, whether that means we turn out to be furries or Ren fair enthusiasts <laughs> or people that collect Warhammer 40k figurines or people who are really into fantasy football or you know, whatever the weird hobby of the day is. Mixed in in those non-normative communities are things like not being monogamous. We are the exact people best positioned to figure out just how absolutely bizarre the social structure of monogamy as a social institution is. And to think that, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't work for most of us. Everyone hates that part, but also hates the people who point that out more for some reason. And and in between all that, we figure out, wait, we could just not do that. 
Yeah. That's, you know, that that's interesting. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. what I hear there is in, in your mind, it's not just that, yes, Mm -hmm. uh, you can be neurodivergent and Mm -hmm. polyamorous or non-monogamous, but that in your mind, it is a really good fit. Like it's a really, it, like it, it is the, it is, it is a relationship style that would be really, Mm -hmm. really, really fitting for, um, folks who are just not typical how they think and how their brain works. Exactly. It, it is just an extraordinarily natural fit for so, so many of us. And a big part of that is that all these the social heuristics that the neurotypical people can just sort of quietly internalize and not even they realize they've done it. They, that doesn't really happen for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And even if it does, it can just not feel right for a lot of us because we can see the places where they don't really work necessarily. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like mm-hmm. our, I, I feel like the, the, I mean, this is my experience at least. And, and mm-hmm. you know what they say, you've met one autistic person, you met one autistic mm-hmm. person, but mm-hmm. my experience has always been like, if you say mm-hmm. one thing, but then you do another thing, I have a real hard time with that. Right. Or if you say this mm-hmm. is really great, but then I'm watching it and I'm going, it doesn't look great. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not capable of like holding something that clearly seems untrue alongside, you know, just because everybody else is saying it's true. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that I think that is a feature of a lot of um, non-normative folks. I mean, it's like, you mm-hmm. know, when someone asks you, you know, hey, Lisa, how are you doing today? Mm-hmm. You know, you know what you're supposed to say, right? You're supposed to say fine. Yeah. But I have to work like super overtime to say fine mm-hmm. because you just asked me a question. How am I doing today? Well, actually, I'm like exhausted and there's a lot going on. <laughs> and, you know, and and really, I just want to mm-hmm. lie down right now. And I'm a little overwhelmed by, you know, the attacks on trans and gay uh, rights in mm-hmm. my country, you know, but nobody wants to hear that. They just want to hear fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they asked, you know, they asked, yeah. you know. My mental compromise is to have like a, a sliding scale of mental honesty, depending on how much longer I want them to keep talking to me. <laughs> yeah. From not, from, from not so bad to, and here's the, the screwed up thing that happened to me today. Yeah. But I feel like there's so many mm-hmm. things like that. Like you said, these unwritten mm-hmm. rules that we're expected to follow. Oh, so many. We're like, but like you're literally asking for the mm-hmm. thing that you don't want. Mm-hmm. And then you're expecting us to just know not to do that thing. And it doesn't compute. The I mean, I can, I, I want to say I can hold and the capacity for unspoken rules. I really can, mm-hmm. especially if it has been spelled out to me at some point. I have the ability to say, okay, that's an unspoken rule that we're going to follow here. Cool. I can do that. Mm-hmm. But it's when it's an unspoken rule that doesn't make sense, doesn't seem mm-hmm. to serve anybody. And I'm still expected to do it and not talk about it to your point about what you said. Like, mm-hmm. if you talk about it, people get annoyed with you. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's all so absolutely bizarre like why does the neurotypical mainstream want me to stop looking at the other beautiful people out in the world if one of them is holding my hand like i don't have enough hands i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) right right well and so i guess Mm -hmm. Like let's mm-hmm. let's dig a little deeper here because I'm mm-hmm. you know one thing that you said that I really liked was, mm-hmm. um, I mean you said it in a couple of different ways. First of all, you said that those of us who tend to be on the um, 
the autistic spectrum or tend mm-hmm. to be, uh, and I think this, I think that folks who are, who have ADHD fall into this category mm-hmm. too, that we tend to be weird, you know, mm-hmm. we tend to be weird in some other mm-hmm. ways, not just yeah. weird in the fact that like, you know, we don't pick up easily on social norms and mm-hmm. the ones that don't make sense to us, maybe we don't want to do, <laughs> but like there are other ways in which we're weird. And mm-hmm. um, what I'm hearing from you is like that there's this journey of sort of embracing your weirdness as opposed to uh, telling yourself that you need to squeeze into some previously defined package of what a human is mm-hmm. supposed to be and how you're, what you're supposed to want, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to love. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm, this might be, cause I'm just making up that people listening might be somewhere on that journey. Mm-hmm. They're thinking about non-monogamy right? That one of the things that might be holding them back. In fact, I actually had a friend tell me this one time I was telling Hmm. her about, um, I had invited her to a party actually with a bunch of my poly friends Mm -hmm. and, uh, she hit it off with one of them and was thinking Mm -hmm. that she might date this person. And then, and then she looks at me and she goes, but Libby, Libby, like all of y'all are so weird. And I just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm worried about being too weird. (laughs) And, um, and I, I I remember distinctly her fear mm-hmm. of like, if I get too connected into this community of people, then I'll lose like access to some of the privileges of being perceived as normal. And I guess I'm wondering, I don't know, what do you, what do you think about that? As someone who has rarely felt like she had access to any of that, I, yeah. we make do. <laughs> I am. I'm never going to get invited to whatever kinds of parties that people who wear polo shirts and then have <laughs> a sweater on their back tied in front. I, I, they're never going to invite me to their parties. I don't, I don't even know what I'm missing on that. Um, front. Unless it's a costume party, right? I, I shudder to imagine a party where that is the costume someone would wear. Far <laughs> too scary. <laughs> All right. So... I mean, hypothetically, that person could be missing out on like whatever high-level networking they, the, the super rich white people manage if that person is, is too goth in public or whatever. I, but I never had access to any of that because I'm Hispanic and my family is in an awkward middle-income area and, and I was entirely too weird, even from a very young age, to get into any of those social spheres. But I'm doing okay for myself and not trying to hide my weirdness meant that when people actually wanted to be around me that it was people who wanted to be around me and not some pretend person that I was constructing for other people's benefit so that they keep inviting me to parties where caviar gets served or whatever it is this person's afraid of well it's interesting that you equate (laughs) normalcy with well whiteness you didn't say whiteness Mm -hmm. but I would say that's probably Mm -hmm. true and and wealth I think that's real interesting. Um, trying to imagine what what this person could be afraid of losing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, she really likes football. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but I mean, I, I refuse to believe that the person who invented fantasy football was neurotypical. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think she likes fantasy football. I think she just likes watching football um, and hockey. She likes hockey a lot. Uh-huh. Um, but you know. I mean, I'll tell you, long story short, uh, she's totally embraced mm-hmm. all of those things, you know, non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last time I mm-hmm. checked in with her, she was like, yeah, I think I'm autistic. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
yeah, yeah, we find um, each other. We find each other. We do. Yeah, we don't so much get di- diagnosed as uh, become autistic by peer review, near as I can tell. <laughs> no, no, but maybe we should, right? Uh, <laughs> well, and I think that particularly mm-hmm. people who are in the like millennial, mm-hmm. uh, like millennial slash older millennial slash Gen X generation, like mm-hmm. the diagnostic criteria for autism changed while mm-hmm. we were like teenagers or older or, um, or younger. Um, but but, but before we were like in the zone to Mm -hmm. really have that aspect of our selves Mm -hmm. notice and acknowledged. And also it, you know, the way the, the, even, even the current diagnostic criteria Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily take, I don't know if I would have been picked up as being noticed that I had any problems. Uh, Um, My grades were entirely too good. Yeah, they kept exactly. evaluating me over and over again, and they're like, no, this person's not broken enough. What are you talking about? Well, right, mm-hmm. because it's a deficit model. Although, you know, when we were looking mm-hmm. at, at at a diagnosable, um, we're causing it. We're calling it a disorder rather than a difference. Mm-hmm. We're calling yeah. it. Um, you know, you have to have enough things wrong with you to, and enough challenges mm-hmm. to get the diagnosis, because the point of the diagnosis is to get accommodation. Instead of it just being a tool to help you understand yourself mm-hmm. and understand your place in the world and how you can care for yourself and ask for care from others. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And and that gets me to one of the ways in which the non-monogamy as a model for thinking about relationships is particularly well-suited for a lot of us. Because the mainstream makes a lot of assumptions about what relationships are supposed to look like. We're supposed to be a certain amount of engaged with each other and only each other. And then after a couple of years of that, you ask them to enter into a, a legal union that might merge your households and finances and they, and you move in together. And you know, some amount of time after that, you, know, you start putting your gametes together too. And, and just... It's just this this escalation and there's this expectation whenever you reach one step that you're going to reach the other ones unless something goes horribly wrong and the whole relationship falls apart. And like, I don't want other people living in my house forever. I'm very particular about where all the things are (laughs) and and whether I have access to the bathroom. (laughs) Well, and I think the important Mm -hmm. point about that is it's all non-negotiated, right? It's all sort of expected. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, even in mainstream, like, you know, I work with a lot of mm-hmm. couples therapists who, um, you know, work with, you know, monogamous couples, more conventional mm-hmm. relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the pieces of advice, even amongst, um, mm-hmm. you know, the most normative of normative couples is take some of those implicit agreements and make mm-hmm. them explicit. Yes. Because, you know, what you think might be cheating, for example, might not be mm-hmm. what your partner thinks is cheating. Like I was dating yeah. a guy who thought cheating was me going skinny dipping in a hot tub with my friends. If there was anybody there of the opposite sex. Yeah. They're always like that. Which is hilarious because because I'm not straight. So like mm-hmm. I'm queer. So it wouldn't, for me, the gender of the people in the hot mm-hmm. tub <laughs> don't matter. And also like what people observe of my physical form has nothing mm-hmm. to do with, uh, but anyway, it was a whole thing. We did not last that, that relationship did not last. I, I, he's a sweet guy, but it was not, it was not for me. <laughs> yeah. But quite frankly, the people who did whose concept of cheating cares about what gender your company is are innately biphobic, as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah. Well, and, and, um, mm -hmm. well, I mean, by erasing as well, you know, it's just assuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whole thing. Yeah. It just plays into that meme that goes around sometimes like, oh, we don't have friends, only pray. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, it's funny. Uh, well, well, and I mean, so I think mm -hmm. the point you're making here is that mm -hmm. because when you're doing non-monogamy, you, there are no more assumptions, right? Exactly. You've, you've blown all the heuristics wide open. And now because none of them apply anymore, some of them are just outright incoherence. When you try to apply them to this kind of model, everything has to be explicitly laid out. You get to figure out what's actually important to you and what, what your hard lines are, which ones aren't, what different models of how to organize all these things might work. Like that that's amazing. Like it's mm -hmm. it is difficult to overstate just how incredible that is and how much the fact that this is just how it has to work in a model this non-normative translates to therapists have to tell all the neurotypical couples to be more like us to make them function better. Right. Isn't that funny? But it's true. It's really true. It's really true. A lot of the, like you said, a lot of the things that yeah. um, couples therapists teach their couples is like how to explicitly negotiate, how to say what mm -hmm. you want out loud instead of exactly. just hope, hinting around and hoping they'll pick up, pick up on it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's hilarious, but, but yeah, like if you want to be in a non-normative structure, Mm -hmm. you can't be implicit about stuff, at least not initially. You can be implicit mm -hmm. about it once you've developed your new, what did you say, heuristic? Like once you've developed yes. sort of your new rubric of like, this is how we mm -hmm. do things. Exactly. You get to have some expectations that maybe this principle would also apply over here, you know? Mm -hmm. But then you kind of, but you've co-created that, exactly. that, that way of functioning that system and how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. And for my brain, good Lord, like just having things spelled out mm -hmm. <laughs> is so, is so important because there are so many ways in which people give mixed messages where people were raised, you know, from in different cultures. And so they just have different, mm -hmm. like different unspoken things have different meanings, depending on where you grew up, how, how much unpacking of patriarchy you've done, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so just to have it all spelled out, I'm like, whew, Thank God. <laughs> yeah, it is such a relief, especially when it's all a replacement for social rules with weird implications that never made a whole lot of sense in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Getting to not only find other people that are willing to meet you where you actually are instead of expecting you to climb hand over fist on off up the side of the mountain of other people's nonsense is just... It's it's so beautiful. Um, well, and do you think that mm -hmm. because we're we're coming mm -hmm. into relationship mm -hmm. expecting things to have to be negotiated and expecting that we're going to meet mm -hmm. uh, everybody's going to try to meet each other where we're at instead of like you mm -hmm. said one person having to like conform mm -hmm. to a norm. Do you think yeah. that that means that there's there's a, a greater willingness mm -hmm. to Accom like be accommodating mm -hmm. to like, like, like when I think about like what you're saying mm -hmm. about, like, I don't want, I don't yeah. want to live with a partner forever. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want mm -hmm. the, the um, requirement for me to be in partnership with someone to be cohabiting because that doesn't work for me or it doesn't mm -hmm. work for me right now. Yeah. And mm -hmm. do you find that then when you're, when you have kind of the, 
the smorgasbord of different types of ways of relating that people are more accepting of that as a limit. Like, I don't want to live with people and people don't go, oh, well, then I'm just going to write you off. And instead you find people who are like, awesome. (laughs) Me neither. I don't want to live either. (laughs) It is much, much easier as a very out neurodivergent person to find other people with similar hangups and in non-monogamy, like very few of us are living in like grand polycule communes with everyone that any of us is dating. And it's, if you start diagramming who's connected to who in a polyamorous arrangement, there's a lot of people with only one line connecting them to the rest on the outside because that's how people meet. That's how networks of human contact work. So almost by necessity, people are going to date people that aren't currently living in their homes and where causing them to start living in your home is going to be impractical. So there's an acceptance that this is just part of the package in a non-monogamous setting. Some people deeply idealize getting all their partners under one roof. And as someone who is generally not necessarily connected to everyone that my partners are also dating, I, I, it boggles my mind that other people can make that model work but like just out of sheer logistics but if it works for them i'm delighted but for a lot of us non-monogamy presents this amazing opportunity to not have the expectation that being in love with someone means you're planning on sharing a home in three years well or any Mm -hmm. of those kind of assumptions right Mm -hmm. and i mean but I think what you just said there kind of speaks to, mm-hmm. I don't know how much this comes up for you when you're talking mm-hmm. to people or who are new or considering non-monogamy, yeah. but a thing that I've run into is, is kind of what my friend said initially, mm-hmm. which is like, I'm worried if I'm too picky mm-hmm. or if I have too many non-normative mm-hmm. needs or if I'm too different, then that means I won't be mm-hmm. able to find somebody who's who's willing to do that with me. You know, we, we say to ourselves, like, relationships mm-hmm. are about compromise. We all have to sacrifice yeah. to be with people that we care about. And so we might not get everything we want. And I mean, I've just seen, I've seen this a lot, people being afraid mm-hmm. to like fully be who they are because they're afraid mm-hmm. that that's going to mean that nobody wants them, you know? And what I heard from you is mm-hmm. that actually yeah. the more I am myself and the more I'm loud about it, the more I'm able to find people who dig that about me and who are interested mm-hmm. in creating the kind of relationships that I can actually live happily in. And mm-hmm. I, I just, that's how I feel too, that like, yeah. if you shine your light about who you really, really are bright mm-hmm. as hell, yeah, it is going to repel a lot of people. There are going to be people who are going to be like, mm-hmm. oh, I definitely want to live with someone. So that's not a good fit for me. Or I'm definitely don't want that many animals in my house, like, or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, if you shine who you are really brightly, then the people who are mm-hmm. looking for someone like you yeah. are going to find you. And that mm-hmm. means you'll repel all the people that wouldn't have been a good fit anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Demographics can mean both versions carry truth, especially mm-hmm. in places where the local dating pool is relatively small. And the polyamorous dating pool is always a lot smaller than the monogamous one yeah. for now. For now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, this can lead a person to having to reevaluate you know, which of their lines are, are should be as hard as they currently are. But one of the other beauties about establishing a non-monogamous relationship is that the pressure for one person you find to suddenly be all the things you're looking for is dramatically lower. Right. And you get the potential to indulge different aspects of yourself with different people and 
they might also they might the ones you find might be super into not having to be the one person who does that thing that you do with your other partners. Right? Maybe this person you mentioned earlier who's really into football will find a partner who does not find football interesting and a different one who, who wears a football helmet everywhere because they're that into football. <laughs> and I don't I don't know what people who are into football are like. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I don't really either. I don't really either. Um, I, I was only excited about the Super Bowl because Rihanna was doing the halftime show. Hmm. And then I just watched the YouTube of that um, the next day. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it's done. Yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and I feel Super Bowl like is, is that time when commercials are briefly interesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I feel like we're in a time now, actually, where mm-hmm. you know, because of technology, because of the internet, mm-hmm. like even if we can't easily find each other at the mm-hmm. local bar or whatever. I mean, I've literally mm-hmm. never met a person that I've dated at a bar, but apparently, this is a thing that people do. Um, mm-hmm. But like, even if you can't meet, you know, the right fit for you at the local bar or at the village square or whatever, mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to put yourself out there and be real clear about who you are online. And sometimes it might mm-hmm. be, you know, on an app and you're you're able to find all of the people who, you know, resonate with what mm-hmm. you're looking for, especially as the apps kind of get more specialized. I don't know. I'm curious what you think yes. of that, but I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but then also, like, I've heard so many stories of people finding mm-hmm. each other long distance and then changing where they live so that they can be together. Mm-hmm. And I just I think that's really interesting. And I guess, I'm, yeah. I'm you know, because because I do think that that fear of, well, if I fully embrace this part of myself, unless I already have a primary partner mm-hmm. that I'm doing this with, which that is one group of people that are like that. But I think it's important to think about the people who are not like that, who are embracing this just in and of themselves and they're taking a Mm -hmm. risk you know i'm going to say i'm non-monogamous and i'm going to put myself out into the dating pool and i'm already i already feel like i'm a weirdo you know Mm -hmm. i already am i going to be narrowing my dating pool further Mm -hmm. maybe instead you'll be able to like you said find more people who can be a a, a network of support for you and also Mm -hmm. find different people who have your special interests because you know finding someone where all your special interests are going to line up that shouldn't even be allowed Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) Uh. (laughs) yeah that that's when you get neighbors complaining that the level of enthusiasm in your house is too high and could you be less happy about everything yeah well you just never leave you'll just never go you'll never go go outside and i guess that might be a joy for some people like finally i don't have to leave the house anymore um, but I just, I guess I, you know, mm-hmm. I guess I'm curious what you would say about how the role technology has played for you in being able to feel more comfortable about, mm-hmm. um, these aspects of yourself. I'm not convinced I would have figured out a lot of things about myself without the, the internet and the forms it has taken in the various years I've been using it. Goodness, it's taken a lot of different forms in the years I've been using it. Uh, it's. Once I figured out that that social media profiles are a a great big giant billboard of all the stuff you want people to know before they start talking to you, that made it so much easier to screen the world for people that would actually find it interesting to continue talking to me so I don't have to spend 20 minutes figuring out that I don't enjoy their company individually. Mm -hmm. I don't have time for that. Yeah, who does? It's a, it's mm-hmm. like a endless job interviews. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. <laughs> and also giving people 
and also giving people like repeated opportunities to reject you um as mm-hmm. well and um I don't know about you. I do not have rejection sensitivity dysphoria, um, but a Mm -hmm. lot of neurodiverse folks do. And for those who don't know what that is, it -hmm. is what it sounds like. It is just a deep sensitivity to any Mm -hmm. kind of negative feedback from another human being. Like none of us likes it. Nobody enjoys Mm -hmm. rejection. But for people who have RSD, it can be like completely dysregulating to experience rejection. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can understand like what you said, like being able to give people the opportunity to reject you, but not be in front of you (laughs) and give you the Mm -hmm. opportunity to reject them, you know, before they're in front of you saves a lot of time, but also some heartache. Absolutely. And RSD is one of the big neurodivergent challenges that we bring to non-monogamy for a lot of reasons on top of non-monogamy being a reason to keep on putting oneself out there even after they've successfully partnered and therefore exposing one to that many more possibilities for rejection. Mm-hmm. Being non-monogamous requires a lot of potentially tense conversations about heavy emotional topics because we can't rely on any of those heuristics from earlier and have to co-create our personal realities. Mm-hmm. And that can be tense. Like that can be challenging. Receiving feedback one doesn't like in that sort of conversation can be quite destabilizing for someone who is inclined to react very strongly to negative feedback. Mm-hmm. So this is a field of human activity where having some coping mechanisms for RSD is very important. Like there's there's not really any getting around that. Yeah. What do you know about what's what's what you know has been supportive for people who who have RSD who struggle with that? Or even just don't like rejection and have a, like, like you said, or like, wait, I have to put myself out there and then keep putting myself Mm -hmm. out there and keep putting myself out there. (laughs) And then also deal with my Mm -hmm. partner, putting themselves out there (laughs) and feeling that discomfort. Uh, I mean, I mean, the putting oneself out there is more or less optional. Mm -hmm. There's there's no poly council that's going to vote you off the island if you don't collect enough partners fast enough or anything like that. (laughs) That is true. That is true. That's important for people to know. You can be polyamorous mm-hmm. and only dating one person. Mm-hmm. That is yep. polyamorous is a a um way in which you want to relate, not necessarily mm-hmm. the structure you have to be operating. And I mean it's both, but yeah. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, anyone who can become aware that their partner is seeing someone else and not pitch a fit or try to end the relationship over it has already escaped the worst strictures of what monogamy is in our society. Regardless of what they are or aren't doing with other people, mm-hmm. so so that's so that's one big thing. Like if it feels like too much trouble to keep looking for more, like you don't have to. Like that's true. It, you could decide it's not worth it, and maybe you're even right. Like this this, this is your emotional landscape. You get to prune it however you please. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, before uh, we go into some of some of the challenges, because RSD is definitely yeah. a challenge, and mm-hmm. and and also some strategies on how to overcome some of those challenges. I guess I'm curious mm-hmm. if we can loop back to yeah. if there's anything else that you can think of that are thing, reasons why you would say non-monogamy or polyamory and mm-hmm. being neurodiverse go really well together. I mean, we've talked about like mm-hmm. having to explicitly negotiate things. People who like to explicitly negotiate things mm-hmm. and have special interests being drawn to each other, being able to find people who are willing to meet you where you are, accept mm-hmm. you as you are, 
and you understanding that that's your your job too mm-hmm. instead of us twisting ourselves into a pretzel to make a relationship that we're just not made for work is there anything else that you'd say this is a hardcore benefit and mm-hmm. this is why you should really consider it? I mean cuz it sounds like you're almost an evangelist if you're not if you're not neurotypical <laughs> maybe you should consider non-monogamy maybe that would be the best thing for you is what uh, i'm hearing <laughs> so not so at all tell trying me. to increase my dating pool <laughs> <laughs> i mean i do think that you're trying you do have a you do have the the polyamorous <laughs> agenda it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> i'm for it how do i sign up for your campaign fund anyway carry on yeah, so, i appreciate so, that so, so another big benefit i find is Neurodivergent people get a lot of unpleasant reactions from the mainstream, especially when we're younger. And a lot of it comes down to not really respecting our autonomy. We're often considered too weird to have our wishes respected. And and there's a lot of parents of neurodivergent kids who haven't heard that word in particular, who think that if they're just rude and unpleasant enough about the weird stuff their kid wants, their kid's going to stop wanting it or at least stop saying it out loud. And there's just this general sense for a lot of us that we don't really get to exist as fully independent people with control over so much as what side of the sink our toothbrush is on until we're living alone. Mm-hmm. And like, and that's when we get to you know finally have light fixtures that don't burn our eyes or flicker us into headaches. And when we get to not have the blankets that make us all scratchy and all, just all this long list of little things that... When people we live with don't respect us, we just have to suffer. And then and then you f- move out for university or your first job in a new town or whatever, and you're finally living by yourself, and you are now the curator of your entire personal space. That is a level of freedom that is very difficult to compromise with later after enduring all of that. And so inviting someone else to become long-term part of your space or leaving that space behind to join theirs can be the profoundly disorienting because you have to figure out then how much of them are they allowed to express without it being an infringement on you and in the standard monogamous relationship escalator model you just have to deal with that because they expect that you two are going to live together and if you don't put that option on the table that means you're not serious about the relationship and they have social approval to abandon you and look elsewhere yeah but in a non-monogamous model a lot of the time you living with them isn't on the table anyway because their kitchen table only has so many seats around it <laughs> and and you're allowed to insist on maintaining your own home either way like it's there isn't this same expectation that you have to live together at some point if the relationship is serious you can have a partner for decades and have both of you maintain your separate homes because that feels right for both of you and so you get to have the hard-won freedom that you were not getting when you had parents that didn't think that your unusual wishes were worth respecting you get to have the kind of home that uh, that one girlfriend you had said you would have to stop having because she likes to have loud music on while she's cleaning or whatever. Mm. Like, <laughs> your space gets to be your own in in ways that it can't be if you have a long term person in your home who's who also has it as theirs. Like, yeah, I mean, I feel like what you're talking about here is coercion, self coercion, and and mm-hmm. acceptance of other people coercing mm-hmm. you into living in a way you mm-hmm. don't want. 
um, because of norms, right? So it's like if you're yeah. exiting norms anyway, mm-hmm. you can say no mm-hmm. to any kind of coercion, you know? And that doesn't mean you don't mm-hmm. compromise or negotiate because sometimes you do. Exactly. Sometimes, you know, you put on headphones when your girlfriend wants to have loud music in the house. Like mm-hmm. then they don't, but then your girlfriend doesn't make fun of you for having the headphones because there's mutual respect. Exactly. For each other's needs. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it is so interesting that, that we would, that you and I, and I would, I would be in the same boat that we would equate monogamy with mm-hmm. a kind of coercion, but it really, but because monogamy is the presumed norm and it comes mm-hmm. with it, all these other presumed norms, which you laid out, yeah. um, it is coerced, right? Because we're shown, mm-hmm. we're, we're told it's the only option. And so it's, it's compulsory the same way heterosexuality mm-hmm. is compulsory. The way some people feel like parenting is compulsory. Although parenting is mm-hmm. an interesting one because I feel like compulsory parenting, but also like zero support for actually being a parent. So making it yeah. like extremely unattractive. But mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if you exit the paradigm that mm-hmm. it's okay to coerce someone to live in a particular way based on mm-hmm. a norm, then, well, then you get to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And you get to invite other people to take care of you and you get to take care of them in the ways that work for them. And it's it's a full respect relationship. Exactly. And yeah. but I don't want to imply that a partnership that consists of only two people can't have any of this level of respect. It's more in a model where people already have to negotiate everything and there's acceptance of not doing things by normative ways, a lot of this conversation has already been had. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's much shorter and less involved, whereas it's something of ours that the monogamous end up having to bring into theirs. It's if, so true. To, to try to have this kind of thing in their model. It's so true. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. actually, it's funny, one of my Mm-hmm. favorite um couples therapists um mm-hmm. well that one that I I've trained under and learned a lot from you know what he talks about a lot is full respect living mm-hmm. not having a power over dynamic in relation mm-hmm. and and he traces it back to patriarchy basically you know men having dominion over the world and over women I mean, I would mm-hmm. trace it back even further I would say it's yeah. it's also rooted in um in capitalism and yes and because uh, we are definitely coerced mm-hmm. uh, in our jobs, in other aspects of our lives, basically, yeah. like you said, from the time we're young, this mm-hmm. idea that you can have power over mm-hmm. and and compel people to want different things, to like different things, to be a different person. That's kind of woven into our society. And people, mm-hmm. I think you're right, people, I think a lot of people who are in monogamous relationships don't like it either. I don't think coercion mm-hmm. has any place in intimacy. And in fact, coercion, I think, disrupts connection. It either disrupts connection to another human being or it disrupts connection to yourself mm-hmm. or both. Oh, yes. So much. And, and, and of course, there are tons of non-monogamous and polyamorous folks who still operate under a coercive model. Mm-hmm. They will, they will feel entitled to coerce each other. But, mm-hmm. but by not doing that, you get to be mm-hmm. you. Very much. And... In our specific case, a lot of it comes down to the social baggage that the neurotypical world likes to inflict on us, where we get rejected over and over again, not just from intimate situations, but from any kind of social inclusion at all. And then by the time we find someone who's willing to 
show us any measure of kindness or even interest in having us around, we feel like we have to do whatever it takes to keep them around. Yeah. Because the alternative is the yawning chasm of loneliness that we all remember from when we were small. And it doesn't have to be that way. It, mm. it just absolutely doesn't. We're allowed to uh, assert what makes the, an environment for ourselves that is better than that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you just said mm-hmm. there is so important that I want to I mm-hmm. want to stay with that for a second. What you said mm-hmm. there is because if you're not neurotypical and you're living in a neurotypical mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. you've been experiencing some form of social relational rejection either within mm-hmm. your family of origin or socially at school or mm-hmm. myriad of places that when you finally do find someone who is willing to like quote unquote put up with you. Mhm you you'll you'll self betray to stay with mm-hmm. them like you'll you'll try to squeeze yourself into a pretzel to make yourself acceptable and you'll feel grateful for the opportunity to do it because that feels better than being alone and yet it's mm-hmm. so not i just want to say it it's really so better than being alone being alone is way better even though being mm-hmm. alone is also very hard and yes. it's you know it's it's very i mean one of my teachers mm-hmm. said this so beautifully last week she said the other human beings are our biome. Like we are mm-hmm. really designed to be in community. And for those of you who don't understand uh, autism, if you really have a, a misunderstanding about what it means to be autistic, autistic people mm-hmm. are just like everybody else. We all need human connection and we crave mm-hmm. it. Very capable of empathy. We're very capable of intimacy. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, in some ways, some of the reasons, some of the things that get in our way is an abundance of empathy, an abundance of taking in so much much. emotional data from everybody that we get overwhelmed and then we don't know how to respond appropriately, (laughs) but it's, but it's not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's not a lack of, of desire to be in community. And Mm -hmm. so, so being able to be with people who can allow you to be yourself and create a space that accommodates Mm -hmm. you is like like you said i mean it's the yeah. best of both worlds it's the it's the holy grail i get to be loved and i don't have to destroy myself in order to mm-hmm. be with someone exactly. I, I can be around someone who gets excited when i go on a 20 minute info dump about what the, the, <laughs> right. the thing i'm excited about right now because they know what it means that i came to them with this I, yeah oh, oh yeah mm-hmm, oh. Mm-hmm. oh gosh man put it in my veins <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think I think I think that's I think that's a solid case for why non-monogamy would be a good move mm-hmm. if you are neurodiverse. So that was a bit of an abrupt cutoff, I know, but we have to split this episode into two parts because there was just so much to talk about and I do not like hour and a half long podcast episodes. I know some of y'all do. It's just not for me. So uh, we're going to leave it here. Stay tuned next week for part two of my conversation with Alyssa Gonzalez. Thank you for joining me today. If you have any thoughts about what I've said today or a question for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram as that polyam mom, or you can reach me on my website, libbysinbeck.com. I'll also say if you are loving my podcasts, but looking for more support, this is something I do professionally. I help individuals, couples, and groups have amazing relationships, and you can find out more about my offerings on my website.
Thank you so much to everyone who has loved this podcast, who has shared with me their love for it, who has shared it with their friends and their networks and their Facebook groups. And thank you so much for subscribing. And especially thank you so much if you have rated and reviewed the show because that helps more people find it. Making Polyamory Work was created by me, Libby Sinback. It is edited by Finn of the Normalizing Non-Monogamy podcast and hosted on the Spotify podcasts platform. Van de Leon manages the website and posts the transcripts. <laughs>